Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. Hi there, and welcome to the latest issue of the Oliver's Insights podcast series. Every so often, it seems, the degree of uncertainty around investment market surges, and that's certainly been the case for more than a year now, reflecting the combination of high inflation, rapid interest rate hikes, the high and rising risk of recession, which has been added to in the last few weeks by problems in US and European banks. All of this has been against the backdrop of increased geopolitical uncertainties. Falls in the value of share markets and other investments can be stressful as no one wants to see their wealth decline. And so when uncertainty is high, a natural inclination is to try and retreat to perceived safety. As always, turmoil around investment markets is being met with much prognostication. Long word, that one. Some of which is enlightening, but much is just noise. I will be the first to admit that my crystal ball is even hazier than normal in times like the present. As the US economist J.K. Galbraith once said, there are two types of economists, those that don't know and those that don't know they don't know. And this is certainly an environment where we need to be humble. While history does not repeat as each cycle is different, it does rhyme in that each cycle has many common characteristics. So while each cycle is different, the basic principles of investing still apply. This note revisits five basic investment concepts I find particularly useful in times of economic and investment market stress. The first one is the magic of compound interest. This was regularly referred to by one of my mentors, if I could call him that, Dr. Don Stammer who would drill into me the importance of compound interest. In fact, one of my favorite charts shows the value of $1 invested in various Australian assets in 1900, and then allows for the reinvestment of dividends and interest along the way. Out of interest, that $1 would have grown to $246 today, if invested in cash, to $997 if invested in bonds, and to around $780,000 if invested in shares. And of course, that is up until the end of February. And of course, I should point out those numbers are pre-fees and taxes. While the average return since 1900 is only double that in shares relative to bonds, the huge difference between the two at the end as to the impact of compounding or earning returns on top of returns. So any interest or return earned in one period is added to the original investment so that it all adds or earns a return in the next period and so on. I only have Australian residential property data back to 1926, but out of interest, it shows on average similar long-term compounded returns to shares. And I mentioned there on average because obviously, just like in the share market, the experience you'll get will vary depending on the shares you have exposure to or the properties you have exposure to. So I guess we're talking about a well-diversified portfolio here of both shares and property. I guess the key message from all of this is that to grow our wealth, we must have exposure to assets like shares and property. In other words, to growth assets. While shares and property have had a rough ride over the last year or so as interest rates surged, History shows that both will likely do well over the long term. I guess the next point is don't get blown off by cyclical swings. Of course, the trouble is that shares can have lots of often severe setbacks along the way, as is evident during the periods um, that we've seen in the past. For example, the 1930s, of course, the... uh, 
The 1950s saw a bit of a blip. Uh, Mid-70s was a really big one. The Aussie share market fell something like 58% top to bottom from its high in 1973 to its low in 74. We saw the 87 share market crash where over a couple of months the share market fell 50%. And of course, we saw the GFC, which also saw a greater than 50% decline. And of course, lots of smaller bouts of volatility along the way. Even annual returns in the share market are highly volatile but longer term returns tend to be solid and relatively smooth. For example, if you look at the rolling 12-month rate of return out of Australian shares since 1900, it bounces around all over the place. But if you look at the rolling 20-year return, you get a much smoother profile. And of course, I think the key is to focus on the longer term rather than the shorter term. Since 1900, for Australian shares, roughly two years out of 10 have had negative returns, but there are no negative returns over rolling 20-year periods. The higher returns that shares produce over time relative to cash and bonds is compensation for the periodic setbacks that we see in share markets. But understanding that these periodic setbacks are just an inevitable part of investing is important in being able to stay the course and get the benefit of the higher long-term returns that shares and other growth assets provide compared to more defensive assets like cash and government bonds. From all of this is it short term, sometimes violent swings in share markets are a fact of life, but the longer term time horizon or the longer the time horizon, the greater the chance your investments will meet their goals. In other words, time is on your side. So in investing, time is on your side and it's best to invest for the long term when you can. Obviously, um, you need to revisit your strategy when you get into retirement. But of course, that is one area where you need to take advice, but it could still lead to the same thing in terms of having an exposure to shares. The third point is what I call the roller coaster of investor emotion. It is well known that the swings in investment markets are more than can be justified by moves in investment fundamentals alone, like profits, dividends, rents, and interest rates. If you look at the volatility in those things, it doesn't really justify the volatility that we see in share markets over time. This is because investor emotion plays a huge part in movements in share markets. And you can see this in a stylized version of the investment cycle that I like to focus on. It was something that was originally put together by Russell Investments many, many years ago. I guess if you think about a typical cycle, you have a boom, market eventually starts to turn down into a bear market. You gives way to anxiety, denial, capitulation, and ultimately depression, at which point the asset class is under love and undervalued and everyone who is going to sell has, and it becomes vulnerable to good news or indeed less bad news. This is the point of maximum opportunity. Once the cycle starts to turn up again, depression gives way to hope and optimism before eventually seeing euphoria again. And then the cycle often repeats back down the other side. Of course, that is the point of maximum risk once we reach euphoria. Key message is that investor emotion plays a huge role in magnifying the swings in investment markets as price movements impact investor psychology. The key for investors is not to get sucked into this emotional roller coaster. Of course, doing this is easier said than done, which is why many investors end up getting wrong-footed by the investment cycle. I guess the key again is to try and take a long-term approach, given the difficulties in trying to time that. And I'll come on to that one in a moment. The fourth point is what I call the wall of worry. There is always something for investors to worry about, it seems. And in a world where social media is competing intensely with the old traditional media, it all seems more magnified and worrying. This is arguably evident again now in relation to uncertainty about inflation, interest rates, and associated recession risks. The global economy has had plenty of worries over the last century, but it got over them, with Australian shares returning on average 11.7% per annum since 1900, with a broad rising trend in the All Lords Price Index, and US shares returning 9.9% per annum. The key message from all of this is that worries are normal, 
setbacks in share markets are normal. There's often a bunch of diverse things that drive that. If you go back through history, we had World War I, Spanish influenza, the 1929 share market crash, World War II, the Korean War boom, which went bust in the early 1950s, the credit squeeze in the 19, early 60s, the Vietnam War stagflation, OPEC crisis in the 1970s, uh, 87 share market crash that I mentioned earlier, recession in the early 1990s, the bond crash of 1994, the tech wreck, the September 11 terrorist attacks, and of course, the global financial crisis followed about a decade ago by the European debt crisis. And then, of course, the COVID-19 setback that we saw in 2020. And of course, recent volatility as well. The key message from all of this is that worries are normal around the economy and investments. And sometimes they become intense, like now, but they eventually pass. The final point is around the difficulty of timing investment market moves. Now, the temptation is always to time markets. And that temptation is immense. With the benefit of hindsight, many swings in markets, like the tech boom and bust and the GFC, look inevitable and hence forecastable. And so it is natural to think, well, why not switch between, say, cash and shares within your super fund or outside your super fund and your regular investments to anticipate market movements? This is particularly the case in times of emotional stress like now, when much of the news around inflation, interest rates and recession obviously seems bad. Fair enough if you have a process and put the effort in, but without a tried and tested market timing process, trying to time the market is very difficult. A good way to demonstrate this is with a comparison of returns. If an investor is fully invested in shares versus missing out on the best or worst days. For example, if you were fully invested in Australian shares from January 1995 up until February of this year, you would have returned 9.3% per annum. And of course, that assumes dividends are reinvested, but I'm not allowing here for franking credits, tax and fees. If by trying to time the market, you avoided the 10 worst days, you would have boosted your return to 12.2%. So good news. And if you avoided the 40 worst days, it would have been boosted to 17.1% per annum, which is fantastic. But this is very hard and many investors only get out of the market after the bad returns have occurred just in time to miss some of the best days. For example, if by trying to time the market, you miss the 10 best days, the return falls to 7.2% per annum. If you miss the 40 best days, it drops to just 3% per annum. So quite a hit. I guess the key message is that trying to time the share market is not easy. For most, it's best to stick to an appropriate, well-thought-out, long-term investment strategy. So I hope that's been of interest and of use. Until we meet again, adios. Keep up to date with Dr. Oliver and the Simplifying Investing podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to your favorite streaming platform.